A quick note to our listeners. This episode was recorded before the COVID-19 pandemic. We understand that the future may look a little different now, but we still want to share these passionate conversations. This is Mary Celeste Bell. Welcome to the BlackBerry Podcast, where we'll dive into stories and knowledge of the incredible people that are part of the BlackBerry story. You'll hear from longtime friends, amazing visiting personalities, and our own inspired team members. Yoga instructor Chrissy Carter joined us at Blackberry Farm for an event inspired by her brand, Home. In the conversation you'll hear today, Chrissy talked with guests about how we all have different ways to find a sense of home in ourselves and our lives. just wanted to start with a quiet moment together so you get comfortable and when you feel ready if you're comfortable with closing your eyes you can close your eyes if you're sitting on the floor you can also always lean up against a chair which I highly recommend Um, so feel free to, to take that on I think one of the things that makes yoga meditation mindfulness feel like a challenging practice is that there are these expectations that it has to look a certain way. We see these images of people meditating in a seat maybe like mine, and that might not be like where we are. And so we've set ourselves up for failure before we've even started. And and then it doesn't feel like a relevant practice that you can take into your life. And we say, oh, it's not for me. But really, you have to find a way to do it that meets you where you are. So to that end, get, get comfortable and If you want to keep your eyes open, take your gaze to the floor. We have this beautiful carpet here. There's lots of things that you could sort of rest your eyes on. I just want you to feel yourself in the room, in the space. And bring your attention to your breath. And very simply, I'm just going to ask you to notice how the breath moves through your nostrils. You might sense the coolness of the air. And as the breath passes through your nostrils, notice how the chest lifts and spreads, how the abdomen releases. So the whole body is opening up to receive the breath. The air passes through your two nostrils and then flows down and splits into the two lungs. And as you exhale your breath, watch the air pass through your nostrils, but also watch how your body settles. Watch the skin soften, the shoulders release, the jaw unhinges. So there's this very real sense of letting go. few more moments.
This practice is not so much about trying to actively breathe as it is about trying to let go of the tension in our body and mind that prevents the breath from simply flowing. You can think of your breath like water, like that beautiful stream that we walked across yesterday. The water will just flow. It's the obstacles and impediments and barriers that actually block the flow. So if we can remove those barriers, then we simply receive the breath. When you're ready, if your eyes are closed, you can drop your chin towards your chest and just let your eyes open softly. Take the room in slowly. And when you're ready, lift your chin. Okay. So I'm, I'm excited to talk to you today a little bit about this uh, concept of being at home with yourself and how that is an extension of yoga philosophy. Because I think for a lot of us, we, we hear the word yoga and we, we think downward facing dog. We think about our yoga mount, think about the physical practice. But yoga, the physical practice, is just one small component of a much larger philosophy and that's what I wanted to share with you today. Has anyone tried meditation and thought to themselves, this is definitely not for me, my brain is way too bananas? Yeah, okay. you're not special. Everybody's brain is bananas. <laughs> and everybody thinks meditation is hard. <laughs> and I think, again, that's also an expectation that we have. Like, I'm going to sit, I'm going to close my eyes, and I'm going to feel immediately the benefits that are being touted in our culture right now about how meditation improves sleep and performance and creates clarity and releases the nervous system and like all these amazing benefits and you just close your eyes and you wait for it to come and it, all you hear are your own thoughts and you think this is not for me. So um, meditation is really the, the goal, if I'm going to put that in quotes, of yoga because through the practice of meditation we, we meet ourselves. And I think that's also the hardest part about meditation is you close your eyes and you greet yourself, maybe for the first time. So um, the larger philosophy of yoga is really grounded in a principle that I think we can take off our mat and into our life in a very real way, and that is to pay attention. If I had to like boil down what yoga means, it would be that, that yoga is paying attention. There are so many um, texts that talk about concentration, which is the main foundation of a meditation practice. You're not meant to just close your eyes and expect your mind to be still. Your mind is like a puppy. You have to give it something to chew on. You have to give it something to do. Otherwise, it's gonna tear apart all your furniture and ransack your house. <laughs> so it needs a chew toy. And the chew toy is any technique, any idea, any um, object of focus, 
that you find relevant and interesting. And you have to find it relevant and interesting because if it's not, it won't capture your attention in a clear, effective way. So I said this yesterday in our asana practice that yoga is really about returning, returning to ourselves. And the practice of meditation is the same thing. We need some kind of hook that's gonna pull us back to what we're doing in the present moment because the hooks of our thoughts are constantly pulling us in multiple directions simultaneously. So if you have a running commentary in your mind that feeds into your story about who you are, then the mind is constantly looking for evidence to support that story. And any time a thought or um, a conversation arises in your head, that's going to pull you away from what you're from what you're doing. So if it's a meditation practice, it might be pulling you away from noticing your breath. Did anyone feel that as we were just breathing? How many times did your mind like wander off? Maybe arguably the entire time, <laughs> yeah? And so you just keep coming back to the breath. The breath is like the breadcrumbs that hook you back into the present moment. But for some people, it's a mantra, some sound that you repeat to yourself silently. For some people, it's looking at a candle or uh, finding a visualization that entertains your mind enough to keep it quiet so that you can experience what's happening in the present moment, so you can experience yourself in the present moment. And there's this part of us that witnesses, eventually we start to cultivate um, a relationship with a witness perspective, which allows us to kind of watch our mind running and be able to see, oh, there's that thought again. There, oh, I'm going down that rabbit hole again. Okay, let me bring my attention back. So there's this like voice that helps to guide the process. And the relationship with that voice, I think, is what we're trying to cultivate uh, in our meditation practice, on our yoga mat, to say like, oh, look at, look at you go again. There you are trying to push yourself into that twist. Oh, look at you trying to you know, jam a square peg into a round hole. And then there's that voice that says, no, I'm going to go back to what's real in this moment. In our life, though, that voice can be super helpful uh, in relationship uh, as we watch ourselves move through the day to say, oh, there you go again. You know, um, you're, you're entertaining a pattern that's not helpful to you, or you're engaging in this conversation in a way that's fueling your own story. Is there, is there a possibility that you could take a pause and abide with what's happening rather than traveling down those very well-worn paths of reactivity and um, uh, story, like we're always spewing these stories that guides our life, but maybe not in an honest way. It simply fuels our ideas about who we are and about what we're capable of. But if we can cultivate this tolerance to sit with what is, it often opens us up to a lot of possibilities that we didn't even realize were there. I find that motherhood for me has been like the new manifestation of this practice in real time. Because these things are challenging to explore on the yoga mat and challenging to explore in meditation. But to me, yoga exists um, in real life. We're, we're all householders. We're not, you know, renouncing all of our worldly goods and moving to an ashram. That doesn't interest me at all. In fact, if I look at the yoga philosophy, um, I, I'm really interested in how it fits within the framework of my everyday life. Paying bills, putting food on the table, 
working, serving, raising my child, being in relationship, friendship. You know, these are all things I think that offer us opportunities to really practice yoga on a, on a very real level. So yoga is, I said this yesterday too, is not a practice of accumulating some version of yourself that you think once you achieve that version of yourself, then all of your problems will disappear. You will feel balanced. You will feel like you have arrived. Um, your anxieties will dissipate. Like that, that doesn't exist. And even if we know that intellectually, I feel like there's always something, especially in the wellness industry, that fuels us to push in a way as if we're trying to achieve our higher self or our best self. If you're trying to achieve your best self, it simply implies that who you are right now is not that great. And so there's a, a, you're coming from a place of lack and an inadequacy. And if you just practice hard enough, if you just meditate long enough, if you just um, do all the right things and check all the right boxes, then finally you will arrive at your best self. Not that that isn't a worthy goal, especially if you're struggling or suffering, to know and have faith that there's something in yourself that you could touch that would help to alleviate some of that suffering. That's a good cause and a worthy endeavor. But I think the key to the yoga philosophy is understanding that you are that already. And it's your own mental patterning that convinces you that you're not. So what are the practices that we can do in our everyday life that actually help us to remember that we are already what we're looking for? That everything that we think we're missing is already within us. We strip away. There's this beautiful... Um, quote, I don't know who to attribute to, that where someone asks Michelangelo, how did you carve this elephant out of a brick of marble? And he said, well, the answer is simple. I just chipped away at everything that was not the elephant. I love that. So how does our wellness practice strip away everything that is not us? Our ideas of who we are, our expectations of who we are, um, the things that make us feel stuck and small, how can we remove those obstacles so that we can actually reveal the intrinsic worth and intrinsic um, wholeness that we are already? So the first thing I mentioned was, again, paying attention. So this idea of paying attention, it takes on a lot of different layers. I think that you can do it in a very literal way. We talked about this yesterday when I asked you the question, where are you? I said, okay, let's think about this really literally. I'm on a platform in the woods on the top of a mountain. Where am I? Okay, here I am. This is my GPS. And can I feel the floor underneath me? Can I feel the texture of the mat? We want to engage our senses. So this is a very literal way to pay attention. If you feel like you're trapped in um, a conversation that's pulling you away from who you are or away from the reality of the present moment, you can immediately practice the art of paying attention by simply engaging your senses. So you stop. You feel, what do you see? What do you smell? What do you taste? Where are you? And that very physical, literal interpretation can help to ground you in the present moment. And that can be your hook. So you, you tap in, you drop in, and then the mind pulls you somewhere else and you say, okay, no, I'm coming back. I'm coming back to the feeling of the ground underneath my feet, the leaves crackling as I, as I go on the hike. 
the, the taste of the wine? Can I be fully present with what I'm doing? Can I really, what was the name of that cheese last night? Brevy cheese. Every bite of that cheese to me was an opportunity to return to what I was doing, you know? So in that way, I find that the pleasures of life are such an amazing opportunity to stay present, which may or may not be what every wellness or spiritual practice encourages. Like, yes, go ahead and um, enjoy the pleasures of being human. I think that there is a, a long tradition of believing that to be a spiritual being in a human life, you have to renounce all of these pleasures. But I really feel like the answer lies in being a householder. The, the answer lies in the simple pleasures of life, the simple joys of life. So these are just very physical ways that we can practice paying attention. When is our wine and cheese tasting? <laughs> so there we go, the perfect opportunity to meditate on your senses and how everything fits together. It's a beautiful way to stay present. I think also, um, to take it a, a step deeper, um, paying attention is also about understanding the context that you're in and, and giving yourself the gift of perspective. Because while your physical world may not change, you wake up, you, you have the same routine, maybe everything in your life is as it is and doesn't change, but your perspective within that experience is always changing. So when you stop and take a moment to pause and appreciate the, the vantage point from which you're looking at your life, that can also offer an opportunity to pay attention and to be present. Um, I also believe that finding meaningful practices in your life that resonate with you is another great way to learn how to pay attention. I love yoga. I'm um, obviously, <laughs> it's okay, you know, it's okay. No, I love yoga. And for me on the mat, my practice has transformed over the years from a very movement flow based practice to a very quiet, still practice where I focus on like what what my bones are doing and what my muscles are doing and that level of nuance and detail really captures my mind and it's very hard to be anxious, which is something that I struggle with, or to overthink, which is something that I struggle with when I'm concentrating on what my body is doing on the mat. But you know where else I find that is cooking. Because when I walk into my kitchen, I put my apron on and I'm fully engrossed in what I'm doing there isn't a lot of time for me to chew on all of my worries and all of my thoughts because if I go back to the literal um, stirring of the pot, the literal senses, that what I smell, what I taste, and, and the heart behind what I'm doing, which is that I'm making this food for the people that I love and I'm creating experience from setting the table to lighting the candle to choosing you know, the colors and creating an experience, like that whole process to me is like a meditation. So your meditation practice, your mindfulness practice, your yoga practice, it doesn't have to be traditional in the sense that, you know, you're, you're on a yoga mat or you're sitting on a cushion with your eyes closed. It can really be a full immersion into your life experience. But what separates the doing from the being 
is the art of paying attention and that you're doing it with your whole heart and your whole self. Um, the, the second principle that helps us with this process is the principle of practicing and non-attachment. So um, practice is the, is the simple act of showing up in the face of repeated failure over and over and over again because you really, really want to. Practice is knowing that there is necessarily, not, ne not necessarily a, a specific destination that you're working towards, even if there is a goal that motivates you to show up, like you're gonna practice because you'd like to achieve X, Y, or Z. But non-attachment is the opposite side of the coin. And they seem to almost come in conflict with each other, like wait a minute, you want me to show up every day in the face of repeated failure for a really long time because I really want to in order to achieve this goal, but you don't want me to attach to the goal? How is that possible? But the idea is that we understand that the goal doesn't define who we are. That whether or not we achieve the goal, it's, it's almost irrelevant because what we learn about ourselves and what we're actually looking for in the goal exists in the process itself. It doesn't exist in the goal. And you know this to be true because how many times have you achieved a goal and then gotten to the goal? How long does that high last? Like not even a day. Not even a day do we give ourselves to be like, yes, look, I achieved this goal before the mind is already looking for the next mountain to climb. It's already looking for the next opportunity for growth and self-understanding. Self-knowledge is the goal of yoga, to see yourself fully, to experience yourself fully as you are in your fullest potential. So practice and non-attachment is sort of like the ultimate balance because non-attachment prevents you from looking for yourself in the goal. But practice is what gets you to show up and participate in your own life experience. So those two are a really important concept in terms of taking your life and making it a practice. Um, the third principle is choosing one thing. And this um, is complicated in our culture because what are we taught to equal success? To do one thing? Everything. To do everything. To do it all. And also to do it perfectly. Um, we're, we're on our phone as we're eating, as we're trying to have a conversation, as we're, you know, trying to conquer the world. Like, you know, how many tabs open on your computer at one time? Like, think of how many tabs are open in your mind at one time. So how do you focus on just doing one thing and doing it well? Well, the entire drive of a, of a yoga practice really is rooted in this concept of just choosing one thing. And I feel like, especially in our busy lives, that might feel totally impossible, but I guarantee you that if you actually find a way to just focus on one thing, that one thing will actually help to relax you in a way that getting everything else done, it, it can't possibly, you know? Does anyone in their life have like a one thing that, that you always go back to that, that helps you to, to stay present? Or do you guys find that you get sucked up in like the do as much as you possibly can? For me, it's definitely cleaning as well. When I feel like I'm spiraling out of control, like just the process of washing the counters, 
washing the floors, you know, washing the dishes, polishing, like polishing silver, polishing my copper pots. You know that I've had a rough week when you come home and all my copper pots are polished. Because it's just, it's interesting. It's a way of finding yourself and losing yourself. It's a way of, um, I don't know how you would explain it, but for me, it's definitely an opportunity to, to stop and, and to refocus and to give myself some space. Sweeping. It's a very yogic practice. I think maybe we all have something, some practice that you may not even consider a practice, like running or sweeping, that allows you to just reconnect. Um, but I want to just explain a little bit about that process and why these things are helpful from a yogic perspective. So meditation. We started our talk with a very short meditation that I helped to guide you through. Um, there are three phases to concentration and meditation. Okay, the, the very first phase is paying attention. So we talked about that by choosing one thing and using that as the hook to bring you back again and again and again and again. This is called dharana. And dharana is effortful focus or effortful concentration. Um, BKS Iyengar, who was a famous yogi, he explained it as the drop of water from a leaking faucet. And every time the drop comes out, your mind is with the drop. And then in that space between the drops, your mind is somewhere else. And then the drop comes, and you're like, oh, yes, I'm back. And then your <laughs> mind goes somewhere else. So that, you know, like it takes some effort. You, know, you have to, you hear the ping of your email, and then your mind to go, oh, no, I have to bring it back. So it's, it's this practice of returning. That is honestly the only part of meditation that you can willfully practice. It's the only part you have control over, is the practice of returning. And that's why I said at the beginning of the talk that you have to choose something that's meaningful and relevant to you, because it has to compel you to return. Until you practice long enough where you cultivate this relationship with that sort of voice inside that says, oh, there you go again. OK, time to come back. In the beginning, it just needs to be something that is interesting to you. So maybe it's running, feeling your feet hit the pavement. There's a rhythm there, sweeping. You know, it's very repetitive in nature. That word in Sanskrit is called japa, or repetition. And it um, was used for chanting, like you chant something and on repeat. Or you work with a mala bead, and there's the repetition. Or you work with the breath, which is obviously repetitive. And that has a very meditative quality, but it also uh, it invites our nervous system to pause and relax. So it's interesting that you chose running and sweeping because these are repetitive actions. Cooking, stirring the pot, risotto, you know, it takes a long time to make. And you wouldn't think that after 12 hours of teaching, I would want to come home and spend 30 minutes stirring rice. But honestly, it's the most relaxing thing I could do because it's just the nature of stirring, being with the rice, waiting for the time to add more stock and you know, waiting for it to thicken. Like that to me is very relaxing. So this is the part that we can willfully do, dharana, effortful concentration. And then something magical happens without us trying. And in fact, the more you try to do it, the more elusive it will be. And that is this place where you fall into a zone where you, you don't know what time it is anymore, and you're not hearing the ping of your email. 
and some of those worrisome thoughts have started to dissipate and you feel like you've come to a clearing in your mind and you're so in the zone with what you're doing that the distractions are not so distracting anymore. Does that resonate with you guys? Have you felt that flow? Maybe it's even in your work. Like you just hit, you hit your stride and um, nothing can stop you. That's called dhyana or effortless concentration. You're in it. This is a really magical place. And again, not one that you can willfully create. So when you sit down to meditate and you try to will yourself into a state of flow, it ain't gonna happen. It's like laying down to go to sleep at night and being like, oh my God, I'm so tired. I have to sleep. Please, please God. And you're looking at the clock and you're like, oh my God. And you're, you know, you're trying so hard to sleep. What does that do? It prevents you from sleeping. So if you're sitting here being like, oh my God, this meditation practice, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna will myself into calm. It only prevents calm from arriving. So you have to find that one thing that compels you to stay with the practice and the non-attachment of being with yourself. And the third and final phase of the process is samadhi. And samadhi is defined in a lot of the spiritual texts as enlightenment. But that word, I think, is really loaded because is enlightenment even possible? Not only that, but the more I learn about it, I don't even know if I'm really that interested in it. <laughs> I am, but I'm not. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, there are certain things that I am very attached to in this human life. So I think, and I, I think I'm very liberal in this, but I'm not sure uh, how you want to define enlightenment. But let me share my definition of an enlightenment. Enlightenment is when you become what you're doing so that you become who you are. In that, in that beautiful, effortless zone that you find yourself in, there's a moment sometimes when you become what you're doing. Let me explain. Um, a musician spends thousands and thousands and thousands of hours practicing. If you go to see a concert pianist, Chances are that person is practicing 10 hours a day, even though they're already a professional. So that they can go onto the stage and not have to think about where their fingers are on the keys and they become the music. There's no distinction between the piano, the music, and the person playing the piano. They become what it is that they're doing. Another example I can give you is writing. It's another practice that I love where you sit down um, actually, I hate the practice of writing, but I love it because um, it helps me cultivate faith. When I stare at the blank screen and the blinking cursor, and I think to myself, oh God, I'll do literally anything. If you just, not, if I don't have to write, like I'll do anything, I'll pay your taxes, whatever you need me to do, but I don't want to sit down and write. So the, the first aspect of like dharana, effortful concentration, is like, what do I have to do to move my fingers across the keyboard? And then all of a sudden, the point that brought me to the keys, the thing I wanted to write about that I was quite sure I needed to say, um, that kind of gets lost because as the fingers move across the keys, things come up I didn't even realize 
I wanted to say and I'm in the zone and I'm not worried so much about my copper pots and how much they need to be polished anymore and I'm just writing and then there's this moment where the point I didn't know I needed to communicate comes out and I become the words that I'm writing. There's no distinction between me, the process of writing, and the actual writing itself. So that is a version of samadhi or um, one form of samadhi that I think that we can experience in our everyday life. So to me, that's what feels interesting because it feels attainable and it feels real. And it's an opportunity actually to help alleviate so much of the stress that we feel every day, um, so much of the pressure that we feel to be our best self can actually be found in these really small moments that are important and yet we don't always make time for them. You know, we don't always make time to, uh, to connect in that way. And it's actually very mundane. You know, it can be as simple as sweeping or washing your dishes or going for a run or cooking a meal for the people that you love or standing in mountain pose and feeling the bones of your feet on the ground. Like these moments, I think, are what wellness can really mean to a lot of us. It doesn't have to be this big grandiose ideal because often in that ideal we feel disconnected from the possibility of that actually happening it just starts to be a carrot on a stick like well one day I'll feel well well one day I'll be that person who drinks green juice and loses 20 pounds and then my all my problems will go away and then I'll stretch my hamstrings and I'll be more flexible and then I'll really have the answers to the universe once I get those hamstrings to open. And then that, you know, and we have this whole list in our mind of the conditions that have to be met in order for us to feel well. Do you guys, are you with me on that? Yeah. Like what are, you know, so looking at those conditions also, and this is maybe deeper work that you can explore if and when you're, you're ready, but those conditions also say a lot about your beliefs of your own potential and what you feel needs to happen in order for you to feel like you finally arrived, in order you, for you to feel like you're finally um, worthy. These things have to be met first, and that lack and mentality of inadequacy, I think, is what makes us feel unwell. So how do we actually come from a place of knowing at our core that we, we're, already, we're already home? This, it's like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. Like She was home the whole time. She had to go on this huge adventure. <laughs> but at the end of the day, she was already there. Um, and, and that, to me, is really what being at home is, these practices that sort of remind you of who you are. Choosing the one thing in your life or in your day or in your moment that helps you to remember the, the, the wholeness of you, those are important practices so that you don't get caught up in believing that you are somehow lacking or believing that your anxiety is you, that your fear is you. You know what I'm saying? Like it's a place where you can be yourself and relax into that. Because then when you're on the ground, so to speak, there is um, a better chance that you'll be able to plug in or drop into that place and know and remember that like, okay, I'm feeling triggered here or I'm feeling fearful and I'm believing that these limitations are who I am. And then you can say, no, actually, there's a deeper place inside of me. I've been there before. I know where that is. 
So I feel like they go hand in hand. You know, as you're sitting quietly and you're working to tolerate your own shenanigans, you, you've been to that place before where you know it's going to be okay. Does that make sense? Because life is not just a beautiful garden um, or a perfect run or a, a great bowl of risotto. Life is hard and painful. And um, it will challenge us at every turn. But I feel like those practices remind us that life is not happening to us. Life is happening for us so that we have opportunities to experience ourselves. So it's really a matter of perspective, but we have to give ourselves a chance um, to believe that, to feel that. Otherwise, we're just being ping-ponged from one experience to the other, feeling like we're like the victim in our own life and that there are no choices and no options and we're stuck. And that feeling of being small and suffering is, is a hard place to be in. And yet we've all experienced that. So how do we pull ourselves away and remind ourselves that we are, again, already everything that we're looking for? Thank you for listening to the Blyberry Podcast. Continue following the journey wherever you subscribe. Thank you to our guests, interviewers, and audience. Dive into more stories, videos, photos, and podcast episodes on theblackberrymagazine.com. Make a great day.